Hello, everybody. Thank you for listening in. This is day nine of my trip through Israel. We've been going through sight at a time, day at a time, with a little bit of discrepancy on the days just earlier on. Some sites lasted longer than others. But for the most part, we've gone one day per episode, which has been a great pace. And um, I've gotten a lot of good feedback from it, so I'm glad you all are enjoying it. Today, uh, we are going from the region of Galilee into Jerusalem, which was very exciting for everybody. But we did have one site left to see in the Galilee region, uh, which I was very excited about. I really loved Galilee. It was a, it was beautiful there, even though it was uh, incredibly warm and Jerusalem with its heightened elevation promised cooler temperatures, which I was looking forward to. Uh, the scenery of Galilee mixed with the history of Galilee just made it one of my favorite places in all of Israel, I thought, at least that I saw. Um, So having one last sight to see before leaving kind of just helped it go smoother. It's almost like being at a friend's house and you don't want to go to bed because you know that when you wake up, your parents have to pick you up. But instead, it's like being at a friend's house and knowing you're going to go see a movie together tomorrow. So it just it smoothens that transition out a little bit. And that's what it felt like. It's like, we're leaving Galilee. Oh, I'm sad about this. I don't want to leave yet. Oh, don't worry. Tomorrow morning, we've got one more thing to see. So that was that was really cool. And after this site, we would go um, down around the West Bank and go into Jerusalem, um, approaching it from the West. So we are in, uh, we're in Galilee and we're going to be traveling south, uh, right to the section of Israel just above the West Bank. It's almost, it almost kind of dips down uh, towards Israel's eastern border. And this city that we're seeing is kind of um, just placed right between, almost right between the border of Israel and um, the border of Israel and the West Bank, as well as the eastern border of the nation itself. So we um, drove down into this little crevice and saw the city of Bethshean. And other people say Bethshan. Um, some people say it's also called Scythopolis, or as our guide said, Scythopolis. I can't really go on carrying, I can't really carry on saying it like that with any sort of seriousness. But obviously they've got an accent and it sounded a lot better when they said it. Um, but that's the that's the Greek name for it, Scythopolis or Scythopolis. Um, and then also sometimes people will say Scythopolis Nisa, N-Y-S-A. And I looked it up. I didn't know why it was called that. But apparently the belief by the Greeks was that this city was founded by Dionysus, which was like the patron god of this city. And um, they named it after Dionysus' wet nurse in their mythology, which was Nisa or Nisa. So that's why they add that name to the end, just as a paying homage to their gods and their history a little bit. Betcheon itself, I looked this up because I thought, you know, I never really picked up what it meant while I was there. I know Bet or Beth means house, um, like Bethlehem is house of bread, Betcheon or Betcheon is, uh, there's kind of actually a couple different meanings. The most agreed upon one is house of tranquility or sleep, but it could have other meanings that relate more to ivory or teeth, which house of teeth or tooth sounds kind of weird. House of ivory might 
refer to like an abundant resource they had or maybe something that they like to build with. I'm not really sure. Um, but that's the general name meaning. Um, the most important part, uh, the thing to know most about uh, Betcheon, in my opinion, and the thing we kind of focused on most, actually the two things we kind of focused on most while we visited this site, is that this is the site where you have the most well-preserved Roman ruins in all of Israel. So, you know, you read in the New Testament that Rome was over Israel for uh, quite a bit of time. I mean, a lot of the New Testament has to be read through that lens of uh, Roman oppression in Israel and the Jewish people having to live, you know, in, in dealing with that, maybe not being as free as they would have liked to be if they had their own sovereign nation. And so uh, that being said, though, you in most of Israel, you've got a, a pretty good representation from every cult. I mean, they call it the crossroads of the world. And you can see that in the buildings there and the architecture and what's been preserved. There's a lot of uh, Roman stuff. There's a lot of Hebrew stuff. There's a lot of uh, Muslim things and crusader period things. And I mean, we've been through it all in all the episodes, if you followed us up to this point. But here, um, it's really, really predominantly Roman, and they're so the archaeology here is so well preserved that walking through this city, uh, at least the ancient portion of it, really feels like you're walking through an ancient Roman city. I mean, it felt like being in Europe and walking through Roman ruins. So that was pretty cool. You kind of forget where you are for a second as you're there. Now, unfortunately, um, as I go through my accounting of this trip, if you're someone who's been on this trip with me, your tour of this site is going to differ just a little bit from mine because I took a little bit of a detour to do something different. Um, and that's all I can really talk about. I can't speak to everything the guides might have said throughout the rest of this tour because um, I wasn't there for it. And we'll get into that in just a minute. But the second most important part about Betcheon, other than the Roman ruins and the well-preserved uh, architecture here, is that this is the site in the Bible where after Saul and his three sons, including Jonathan, died in battle, their bodies were hung from the walls of Betcheon. So this is why it was really cool to me. Um, you've got a city listed straight from the biblical text. You've got an incredibly important biblical figure, or two of them actually, Saul and Jonathan being listed in relation to this city. Obviously, they weren't like living here. Um, at this time in the Bible, it was a Philistine city. So it's not like we're seeing a lot of Israeli uh, architecture or archaeology by any means. But still, two incredibly important figures in the Bible, the first king of Israel, or at least his body had been here at this site, as well as the body of Jonathan. And this is significant to me. I, I realize it's not like end of the world, like, whoa, this is the most incredible thing ever. It's just that a body laid here at one point. And being a Christian, you know, the body's not really much of anything. But even so, death is important to us. Um, if we think about people that have died in our own lives, we've got graveside services, we've got funerals, we've got memorials, we've got visiting cemeteries, um, and all this stuff just to respect the dead. There's even laws about not desecrating bodies or graves, and they're taken very, very seriously. And so death is important to people, and we, we have a certain respect about it. And if you look at David's reaction to when he found out that Saul died, it was um, pretty significant. 
he mourned this death. And you'd think of all the people that would have cause to not mourn it, to even celebrate it maybe, it'd be David. But if you look at his posture towards Saul during his life, he had plenty of opportunity to kill him, but he saw this as a very um, a very heavy topic and something that he wasn't going to you know, do for himself. He was going to wait on God's timing, which I think is a really important lesson. But he saw that Saul was uh, the Lord's anointed and to raise his hand against the Lord's anointed was something he was not going to do. And so in Saul's death, he, he saw this as a very big deal, even though it dealt with a lot of his troubles and difficulties and things might've been easier for him up to this point or after this point, the death of Saul was monumental for David. And so uh, seeing the place where his body lay or, or hung for a while, especially at the hand of the Philistines, I think is, um, just an interesting thing to see. And there was a certain gravity about the place that I thought was cool. So when we got here to Beth Shean, it wasn't, it wasn't a terribly long drive or anything. We're still in the Galilee region. Um, we get out and first we pass through the modern city of Beth Shean, which is something that is worth noting. A lot of these places you'll go and see the ancient city, but there's also a regular like thriving city happening at the same time. And typically it's on the outskirts of it, or maybe, maybe it's the opposite. So what used to be the inside of the city would have been the archeological part that we see today. And now the outskirts of it are the modern part today. If you were to like type in Beth Shean, unless you typed in the national park that we were going to see, um, you'd probably get to an address in the modern city, which was pretty quaint. There was like a little neighborhood there. It wasn't hugely built up or anything, but, um, just something to note that I hadn't really thought of, you know, when you're, when you're trying to figure out, okay, how are they doing this with the mixture of modern and ancient? How do we balance these things in the landscape? And at Beth Shean, this is how you do it. Um, there's just kind of two distinct areas, one being the national park with the archeology span and one being the modern city. And the first thing that we noticed when we got here, or at least that I noticed when I got here, is this is a pretty flat open space. It's very deceiving size-wise because you look and the pavilion that you start under before you start on your tour overlooks the entirety of the ancient city and you can see all of it. And because you can see all of it, you think, oh, okay, this isn't so big until you walk down some stairs into that city and then you're like, wow, this is massive. I mean, it takes a long time to walk through the whole thing. And because of that, uh, we weren't going to get to the parts that I really wanted to see. Um, I was on the same bus as one of the organizers of our trip. And he just mentioned kind of in passing to our guide, I was I happened to sit close enough to the front that I could hear them. But he said, yeah, we're kind of running a little bit late. We need to be in Jerusalem by this time because the uh, Israel Museum or the Jerusalem Museum that we're going to go to shuts down at a certain time. We want enough time there. And so he said, let's not go up to the highest part, which is, um, so if you're standing in this pavilion and you're looking out over this ancient city, it's very flat. And just at the far end of this city is this huge, uh, in my pictures, it doesn't look that big. And I wonder if you look up pictures online, how big it would look, but it really is huge. Um, almost like a mountain or a hill type thing. And you can see that rising above the landscape just past this ancient city. And that is where 
more ancient sites are. So you've got Philistine archaeology happening up there. You've got Egyptian. Primarily, it's Egyptian archaeology. And we'll get into the history of all that in just a minute. Um, but this would have been where the bodies of Saul and his sons were hung up on this hilltop area where the ancient city would have stood. And so this is where I wanted to go really badly. Um, Roman architecture is really cool and it's great. But, you know, as we've gone through in the previous episodes, it's it's kind of been biblical archaeology first for me and then every other form of history after that, which I do love history. I, it's one of my favorite things in the world to study and read about. Um, but there's just a, an ordering of things that I tried to stick to as best I could while I was in Israel. And so it, it takes a long time to get up this this hill or this, this cliff rising mountain face thing. Um, they do have stairs up it, which it's, they say it's exactly 200 stairs. I counted more than that. Um, so I'm not sure where they're counting from exactly, but you can see them, uh, off to the side. When you like look out at this landscape, there's off to the right of this mountain. There's like these black, this black ribbon of stairs going around the side and then up to the top of this, this mountain area. So that's where I really wanted to be. I knew it was going to be a lot of stairs. I wasn't exactly sure how much 200 was going to be. Um, people even asked me, they're like, Did, were you aware that it was 200? I was like, yeah, I was aware. It actually, I mean, it was a lot. I'm not going to say like I wasn't tired by the end of it. I definitely was. But it wasn't as much as I had thought. Like, you know, it's kind of a valuing thing where you're like, do I know what it takes to climb 200 stairs? And I didn't. Um and I almost wanted to like brag about it afterwards. Like, yeah, man, I made it up 200 stairs. But really, um, a lot of things are 200 stairs, especially in Israel. Even at uh, Herodium, which we had just been to a couple days prior to this, uh, when we were in uh, the northern portion of Israel that wasn't Galilee, um, we went up like, I think it's like 190 or 200 stairs just to get to the top of the, uh, like the fortress there. And we just didn't know the number that it was. So we all climbed up there. No one, I mean, we complained a little bit, but it wasn't that bad. And so when I heard it was 200 stairs, I was like, oh man, that's huge. Not realizing I had just done it like a couple days before. And yeah, so it wasn't really that huge a deal, but I, whatever it took, I wanted to get up there. And sometimes the fact that it does seem like a bit of a climb, um, kind of makes me want to do it more. You know, you just, you want to say like, yeah, I did that. Um, the problem is with a lot of these places, I was really disappointed because some of these places have options to climb and they have some options where you can take more modern conveyances up. We'll talk about that later when we get to uh, Masada, but a lot of these places, like I wanted to climb up there. I, I know I can do it and I'd like to be able to say that I did it. It's just, I don't want to hold the group back. You know, I know that I'm going to take longer than someone younger and more physically fit than I am. So it's kind of this balancing thing where I'm like, okay, how bad do I want to do this? And if I break away from the group, is anybody going to notice? Or what if I still take longer than I think I will? And I make people fall behind or have to wait on me. I was kind of terrified of that. But as soon as we got there and it was like determined, we're, we're not going to go up to the top of the mountain here. I was like, all right, well, that's definitely where I'm going to go. So I want to talk a little bit about the mountain, about the city itself. Um, originally, this was in the land of Canaan and was um, taken over by Egypt. This was kind of 
um, an area of operations for Egypt. And so they built things up here. There's a lot of Egyptian ruins up at the top of this mountain. And they were, I mean, Egyptians were good builders, you know. So even later when the Greeks came in um, and the Philistines, it was like a lot of that stuff was maintained because tearing it down would have been more trouble than it's worth, especially because you got to climb this huge you know, mountain and they didn't have any stairs to get up there either. So, um, when the Greeks came in and they saw this, like typically what you would do is if you're going to take over a place, even if it's been abandoned or whatever, you're going to go to the highest point you can, you're going to build there because that's the easiest to defend. But here it, they looked at it and they thought, all right, this is like way too steep. I don't think we're going to be attacked here. So they just left the city on top of the hill and built at the bottom. And that's why you kind of have this old ancient city at the top of the hill and this uh, newer ancient city at the bottom of the hill. Um, Previously, we talked about Hatsor, which was another archaeological site we went to. It also had a mountaintop city and a base level city. The difference is they started at the mountaintop and then the city became so big that they had to expand and it had to kind of flow down the mountain. And that's why you have uh, civilization at the bottom of the mountain as well. Here, it was just too steep of an area. They're like, it's just not worth bringing all these bricks and stones up to the top to build there, especially when there's already stuff up there that's very usable. And so they started out, the Greeks did, building at the base of this mountain rather than at the top. And what that's done is actually really help in preserving some of the more ancient archaeology that's at the top of this mountain. So that's really cool. And they're still doing a lot of excavation up there. Um, It was not nearly as, I mean, it's a lot older, first of all, than the Roman stuff down below. But it's also um, just not as well preserved or excavated at this point in time. So I did see a little bit of that, but I didn't hang out too much while I was up there, but mostly, uh, it's Egyptian. And then they found, uh, Philistine artifacts up there as well. So as soon as we got there and we took off on the tour, this whole city is very open and we're sitting there listening to the guy, um, Duran, who is our guide at this point. Oh, actually I forgot to mention that. So I was really fortunate. I want to give a shout out to my friends, Mike and Sue powers who were on this trip with us. And they asked us one of the nights, they said, how's your guide? How's the trip going? And really, our guide was Oren, and I really liked him. As a person, he was just such a kind human being and just spoke with um, a level of meekness and respect for people that I I really appreciated. But his specialty, as I mentioned before, was um, more modern things, modern Israel or modern history or... Um, even technology was something he was personally interested in, in a little bit more. Now, he's still a guide. He can still answer questions and he's still intelligent and he's not like slacking by any means. It's just he has his things that he prefers to talk about or can go on at length for. So when I told him that, he said, oh man, I wish you were on our bus because our guide, Duran, he is just brilliant on the New Testament. So even though He grew up Jewish, and he still keeps some of the the Jewish laws. He's not very religious at this point in his life. Um, He graduated with a master's degree uh, in America, actually, uh, in New Testament studies. He did his thesis on like the Gospels and everything, so he was really well-versed in the New Testament. And if you're well-versed in the New Testament 
and you have your background is uh, Jewish, then you've got a pretty good handle on the Old Testament as well. So he could kind of see the pieces fit together, which I thought was really cool. And I hadn't got to speak to Duran up to this point. But th- this guy, Mike Powers, he said, now what's your guide talk about? And so I told him, and he said, you know, my wife might actually enjoy that more than uh, some of the New Testament or some of the history or the, the biblical studies stuff. It's not that she wasn't interested in that at all. It's just that, you know, she's in Israel and she sees all this old stuff and thinks this doesn't really do a lot for my faith. And everybody's different. So, I, you know, that's fine. It's not a big deal. She's She feels like her faith is solid. Archaeology is not going to like wreck it or prove it by any means. Not that it's not cool to see. But she was definitely a little more interested in the, the uh, more modern things. And he told me that, and I knew that in part, he wasn't lying to me. I do think his wife, Sue, might have been a little more interested in that. However, I know that he was giving up his seat for me, and he did offer that. He said, why don't me and my wife go on your bus, and you and your dad go on my bus, which is bus one with Duran, so you can have um, the experience of you know, talking with a guy who's more familiar with the Bible. That sounded awesome to me, even though I loved Oren and I really felt bad because you really kind of felt like you were betraying the guides if you switched buses. Um, there were some friends on my pre-feast bus that had switched to stay with Idan, which was our first tour guide. And um, the whole time we were on the bus, I said, man, you guys are traitors. You betrayed us. How dare you? Oren's going to have his feelings hurt. And then I ended up switching buses. So I felt a little bit bad about that. Um, I made peace with Oren afterwards and I know that I'm really hoping that Mike and Sue still had a good time on their bus. Um, they left a lot of friends on bus one and they left an excellent guide, but I'm, I'm just really, really grateful. And I can't say thank you enough for them allowing me to be on bus one with, with Duran because he really was a fantastic guide. So this is the guide we're with. And what do you know? First time we're on this bus, um, I decided to leave his tour. Kind of a rude move, but I wasn't thinking about that at the time. I'm just kind of coming to that conclusion now. But we're on the tour. Duran's talking to us. And um, it's, you know, I'm just, I'm having trouble listening because I'm looking over at this mountain across. I mean, you can see it from everywhere. And I'm like, that's where I want to be. That's where I want to go. And so I just, I couldn't pay attention. And so eventually I just told a few people, I said, do you think it'd be a big deal if I just, ran off and left and just went up there. And they were like, no, I think it's probably fine. You know, I got, I got the all clear, at least from friends, not from anybody actually leading the group or leading the tour or who knew anything about the timing of everything, but I really wanted to go up there. And so I left the group, just kind of snuck off a little bit and marched through the streets of this Roman city. So our group went over to the right of the city where there was this huge amphitheater and they were talking in there for a while. I just kind of peeled off left and went straight through like the main uh, promenade through the city. So there's like this main street with columns all along it. And I walked through there and the whole place is like basically deserted. There's almost no people there. And it's as I'm walking through the city that I'm like, wow, this is so much bigger than I thought it was. And so I'm like speed walking as fast as I can. Cause I'm like, I don't want to make people late. I'm not sure how long this tour is going to go for. I know we're already running behind as far as getting to Jerusalem goes. So I got to hurry and I'm not even at the mountain yet. You know, I'm just in the main street of the city. And so I keep on walking and walking and walking. And there's very few people, 
um, touring this place at this time. Finally, I get to the far end of the city and I see this mountain and I see the stairs, but there's no way for me to get to it. I'm looking and I'm like, I have no clue how I'm supposed to get to those stairs because between me and the base of this mountain thing are like rooms of ancient houses that are roped off. Like these are archeological dig sites that people are actively working on. And I don't know how to get there. And I'm, I'm worried because I'm thinking maybe this is like, you know, you can't get there or maybe, you know, I'm not sure if maybe it closes at certain times or maybe there's a way around, but it's farther away and I don't know how to get to it. And so I'm standing there for a minute trying to figure out how to get over there. Then I look up at the stairs and even there, there's like a rope that's strung across the stairs, almost like a do not cross thing. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. So even if I get to the stairs somehow, I might not be able to get up there because the mountain itself is closed for archaeological reasons, or maybe they don't have enough guides or they need someone to supervise up there. I'm not sure what. So I'm freaking out. I'm not sure what to do. And out of nowhere, this guy starts walking down the main road towards me. And I'm like, oh man, you've got to be kidding me. Turns out he's just a tourist like I am, but he's from Israel. He's from the area. And I don't know, the odds of him speaking English weren't super high, but I thought I'd give it a try anyways. I said, do you speak any English? He said, "Eh, a little bit. I said, okay. I said, how do I get up there? And I pointed up to the mountain. He said, oh, it's closed. I'm like, oh man, you've got to be kidding me. He said, well, I think it's closed. I don't really know. And I said, oh man, does it open at any certain time? He actually spoke a lot better English than he gave himself credit for. But I asked him, does it open at any time? Like, is there some time I have to wait for? Maybe it's like an exhibit. You got to, you know, line up and then they open it up. And he said, no, just, just cross over. I said, what do you mean cross over? I said, these are, this is ruins. I can't go in here. He said, this is Israel. No one's going to stop you. Do you see police anywhere? I said, I guess you're right. No, I don't see police anywhere. He said, yeah, it's fine. It's fine. And then he jumped into another one and just started walking around in it. Like over this little, I mean, all it is is like a wire fence. You know, it's not like high security or anything, but clearly there's like a please respect the boundaries of where we've roped off for you to walk. And Israel is already very lenient on what you can and cannot walk through, touch, interact with. And so if they've got something roped off, I try my best to be respectful of it. But this guy jumps down into one of the houses and he says, come on, he waves at me. And so fine, I jump down into another one, climb up out the other side. And finally, I'm at the base of this mountain, but still there's this rope. This guy just unhooks it for me and hooks it onto the other post. He says, now you can go up. I said, oh man, thank you so much. I'm not sure how loud this was, but he seemed to be very confident about it. So um, I start going up these stairs. What I didn't know is that these stairs go from the base of the mountain all the way off to the right side of the mountain. And they start out very long and shallow. So they're, they're like not very tall steps, but then you've got to take like two or three steps in between each one. And those go all the way around the side of the mountain. And then you start on this set of more regular metal steps leading up to the top. And so maybe that's like they're not counting those steps because those did go on for quite some time. They're very irregular. Um, You had to kind of watch where you were going. Um, But finally, I made it to the base of the actual steps that lead up to the mountain. And I'm terrified that I'm running late because I'm already... You know, I was already stopped at the bottom, stopped at the stairs, stopped everywhere along the way. And I look back into the city trying to see my group to see, 
okay, well, if they started on this side, maybe they're going to work their way back to the other side and I'll know roughly how much time I have left. I'm just, and stupid me, I didn't check the time when I left to see how much time I was taking. And in the end, this did not end up being a big deal at all. But I go all the way up these stairs and I'm like, I was tired. I'm not going to lie. It was hot. It was humid. Um, I had already walked through this whole city super fast without seeing anything. Um, And I was already stressed because I wasn't sure I was supposed to be here even. I was afraid I was going to get caught. But I walk up this mountain, get to the top, and I'm so glad I did because, wow, it was incredible from up there. I mean, like it was cool to see the whole city from where you were at the front of the park itself at that little pavilion area. But from this mountain, you just get such a better view of everything, the layout of the whole thing. And it was just absolutely beautiful. So I was really glad I got up there. Um, Finally, I got a little pinch of dirt, put it in my Bible, um, right at the spot where Saul is hung, which um, in your Bibles is in 1 Samuel 31. uh, In verse 8... Let me see. Yeah, yeah. So in verse 8, it says, The next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. If you remember from a few days before, we saw Mount Gilboa from Mount Carmel. There was one of those plaques that listed all the mountains that were around. Um, and that this is where the final battle with Saul, uh, where Saul ended up dying was. And then in verse 9, So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. It's crazy that they say that's good news. You know, it's like we think of preaching the good news and it's good news for everybody. This is just good news for the Philistines. But in verse 10, they put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. So I would read that before and have no idea what I was looking at. And now I realize to get the bodies of Saul and his sons back, they've got to sneak through this city that's at the base. Then they've got to... Actually, sorry, there probably was no base city at this point in time, but they've got to sneak underneath this city without any of the guards seeing them. And remember, they're up high, so they can see for a long way away. Sneak under the cover of night, crawl up the top of this mountain, get to the very walls of the city, then remove their bodies, and then come all the way back down. And I mean, it's just, it's an important and impressive thing that they did. And you know, I would just read it and say, okay, that's what happened. But now I have a respect for how it happened and exactly how much effort and energy it took to do it. When I was up there, like I said, I did see a few uh, archaeological things, a few walls, and uh, I took some pictures of them just in case they happened to be the ones that um, Saul and Jonathan were hung on. But probably that's not the case. These are probably later built walls. So I came back down Uh, I was only up there for a few minutes and I came rushing back down the mountain. I wish I had stayed up there longer. If I had known how much time I had left, um, I would have stayed up there quite a bit longer, but I rushed back down because I wanted to meet the group. I didn't want to be late. And finally I go back down the main street of this city, trying to take pictures as I'm walking and I meet up with my group and some people of the group, it was a big city. And so some people of the group went back to the pavilion area and just sat and waited 
And so I went up there. I figured, okay, they haven't left yet. I'm just going to go sit there and wait for them because I don't know exactly where all of them are. But I did meet up with some of my group there. And they're like, oh, man, that didn't take you very long. I'm like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. I thought I was up there. I thought it took me like an hour. And instead, it took me like 15 minutes to like walk across the city, up these stairs, get the dirt, take the pictures, walk back down, walk back through the city. And it was like 15, 20 minutes. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. So I was a little upset with myself for not keeping better track of time, letting my fear and anxiety get in the way. Um, But I was really glad I got up there. The worst part of it was other groups that walked past Uh, You know, they took the whole tour of the city and then they walked past the mountain and they didn't get the memo that they weren't allowed to go up there. So their guide said, yeah, you can go up if you run. We have enough time, but you have to be very quick. And so I didn't have to leave the group at all. I could have just gone up quickly. The, The thing is, I wasn't taking into account that it's a lot different to say a few people that want to go up can go up really quick versus let's take the entire group of people up, whether they want to or not especially with older people who have to go a little bit slower. That's a totally different story. So we had plenty of time for a few people to go up if they wanted to, not plenty of time for everybody to go up and cycle through the whole area. So I understand the general statement of we don't have time. I just wish I had thought a little bit more critically because then I could have toured the city and gone up to the top. And that was a little bit frustrating. Something that I learned though that was really cool is that at the top of this Uh, mountain area, there's a tree and the tree is still standing there. And if you've ever seen the movie, Jesus Christ Superstar, uh, if you haven't, I recommend it. Often Christians will say, well, that's very sacrilegious. I don't like to see movies like that because it makes fun of the gospel story. Absolutely. It does not. It is a great movie. It's got, it's kind of a rock opera. So you kind of have to be used to that a little bit, or at least overlook the types of music you don't really love. But it's, um, it's the story of the gospel, or the, the ministry of Jesus at least, and leading up to his uh, persecution and death, told kind of through the eyes of Judas Iscariot. And I know we don't have a lot to go off of biblically, and so it does take a lot of license, but it is at least, um, I, I don't think they do anything like sacrilegious or evil against the Bible. They're not making you think that the Bible says one thing that it doesn't. They're just offering a different perspective or a different viewpoint. So it's it's actually a really nice movie. Um, I don't think anybody that would watch it uh, critically would have a huge problem with it, especially knowing that they're not trying to preach biblical truth. They're just trying to tell a story through a different perspective. But up there on the top of this mountain, there's this tree, a very crooked, jagged, bare tree. And this tree was the same one they used in the movie Jesus Christ Superstar, where Judas Iscariot hung himself. Now, in reality, this happened um, in Jerusalem at the Valley of Megiddo off to the southern side of the temple. Um, at least that's that's what the, the text seems to indicate. Um, but anyways, this is what they used in the movie, and I like that movie, so it would have been cool while I was up there to take a picture with that, but for one, I didn't know anybody else was coming up, so I didn't get any pictures of myself up there because um, I didn't know people would come up to be able to take pictures. And two, I didn't know how long I'd have. And three, I didn't know this information before going up because rather than wait and hear people out on everything, I just rushed to the top. So there's a lesson there, but in the end, I'm glad that I did it. Afterwards, not only did we have enough time for people to go up to the top, 
Afterwards, we stayed at this same place underneath, underneath the pavilion and had like a sack lunch uh, for about an hour. So, and that took me about, you know, 10 minutes to eat. It was like a sandwich and like an apple. So I'm not, it wasn't bad. I'm not complaining. It, it was perfectly fine. It's just like, it wasn't like we were sitting down and ordering food. It just, it was a quick lunch. So I had a lot more time than I thought to explore and I wish I had taken it, but I just simply didn't know. After this, um, I was tired. I had walked properly that day and it was, I felt good. You know, I had seen something that was cool. I was excited about having been there, excited about adding some more dirt to my Bible at the section of the Bible where it happened. Um, and I was excited about going to Jerusalem. So all trepidation about leaving the Galilee region was gone. I was ready for Jerusalem. We got back on the bus and we had a long, long drive after this point. It was a couple of hours. And as I was preparing for this episode, I was trying to think of our route because the the drive seemed so long. And remember, we're north of the West Bank, but kind of tucked away um, in between like the eastern border of Israel and the border of the West Bank. It's kind of in this little crevice area. And so we would have had to go north and then around the West Bank and then back into um, Jerusalem. So it's kind of like making a a C shape uh, on, on the drive. So I thought that's what we did because the drive seemed so long. But really... Uh, now that I'm thinking about it and looking at a map, we must have gone straight through the West Bank. So just immediately south. Uh, I don't remember going through a checkpoint, but we must have because, you know, honestly, we did it so often, um, especially around this time of the, of the trip. And it just wasn't that big a deal. Like sometimes they'd hop on the bus and check on us and say, hey, how are you guys doing? But for the most part, um, cars were going through pretty quickly, you know, and and it didn't seem like this big thing where they're pulling out people and searching them and nobody's allowed through. I mean, now that's probably the case because of all the conflict going on there. But at this time, it almost seems like people now want to look at these checkpoints and they're like, well, that's evil that they have checkpoints. People should be able to go and come and go as they please. But it's like, well, that's kind of something set up by both sides, Palestinians and Jews, because I mean, even, even things like uh, to go into Bethlehem, our guide couldn't um, our guide couldn't go in with us. We, or he, had, he could go in, but he couldn't be a tour guide there. We had to pick up somebody else. Um, they're very specific on your stuff versus our stuff. So it's not exactly like Israel is performing this sanction on Palestinians. It's almost like there's an agreement reached. Uh, and we'll talk about that more when we get to the temple of like, okay, this is how it's going to operate, but Israel's going to be in charge of having the armed forces there. So it's, yeah, it's not like one side opposing the other side necessarily, as much as you want to see that in media. Um, people are going to talk about that till the cows come home, but really going through checkpoints was not a huge deal. So much, not a big deal. that I don't even remember going through one to get into the West, ba- West Bank at this point, though I'm sure we did. Every once in a while, the guy would just say, and we went through a checkpoint. I'm like, oh, okay. I didn't even notice. Sometimes we didn't have to stop, but we must've gone straight South because on the way there, um, first of all, we had a lot of desert area. So we're going along the Jordan river, but at this part of Israel, it's very, very narrow. And, um, there's a lot of desert area. So you can see where it is because there's green on either side of it where it's, you know, allowing vegetation to spring up. But for the most part, we are close to Jordan and this particular part of Israel uh, is a lot warmer. So we're going south uh, through a lot of desert the whole time. And it was interesting because we're seeing these like 
Um, I was waiting to see sand because especially when we had talked about how Frank Herbert was inspired by Israel's water reclamation to include that in the dune series. I was like, okay, I want to see some, some sand dunes and stuff. We never really saw that exactly. Um, the closest we would come was when we went to Jordan, but it was at this place. It was like, wow, this looks pretty dead. Not a lot grows out here. And we started to see like Bedouin shepherds on the road and a lot of, a lot more red and orange color in the landscape as opposed to like palm trees. And it's just a very, very much a varied, uh, topography here and as well as geography. So it got really dry, uh, before we ascended into Jerusalem and we actually passed by Jericho. And that's how I know that we must've gone through the West bank because Jericho itself is in the West bank. So we didn't stop at Jericho, which was a shame. I really hoped that we would. And it was, I think it was tentatively on a schedule based on what kind of conflict was going on. There's certain areas that are like, ah, oh, this is a little bit more sketchy and this one's not so much. Our guides didn't seem to be worried either way, but the people that were leading the tour were like, well, we just want to be safe. So we did pass by Jericho and our guides pointed it out. And that makes me know we went through the West Bank and then approached Jerusalem um, from the east going into the west. And so that's how we, how we got to Jerusalem. And it was awesome because... As we're heading in, you know, our, our guides are talking to us and explaining like some of the, the trips that it takes to get into Jerusalem, whether it's um, Jesus coming in or even like David coming in at certain areas. And it's just like we're ascending. Uh, we're at this super low elevation. It is hot here. It is humid. We're right between Jerusalem and the Dead Sea. And they're like, see how arid it is here but as we ascend it's like going into life almost and the temperature will drop significantly because we're i mean we're going from basically the dead sea which is like one of the lowest elevations ever which also makes for a very hot place and then we're ascending um not only to neutral ground but above sea level as well so it's quite a significant ascension walking it would have been absolutely miserable um, at least for me, but this is what they did to ascend into Jerusalem like they did in the Bible. So that was really cool. And we, uh, we approached the city, um, lots of traffic at this time. And I'm sure the people were worried that we weren't going to make it to the museum on time. We did eventually make it. Um, I didn't mind the traffic so much, to be honest with you. Some people were like, oh, it's, it's just miserable. It's wall to wall. And I'm thinking, you know, if I go to New York, like it's going to be a lot worse than this, at least here we're moving at least inching forward. Um, so I've seen a lot worse traffic in like New York or California, but you know, here it, it wasn't awful, but it definitely was pretty packed. And then we, we went through this tunnel and off to the left, when we broke through this tunnel, it kind of reminded me of like a city version of going to Yosemite. I've seen those videos where they go through a tunnel and then boom, everything opens up into this beautiful natural park and the sun is shining just even more perfectly than it was before. And the trees look beautiful and there's waterfalls. This was like this, except the city version. So you go through this tunnel and then boom, there's this shining city and it's jam packed everywhere. I mean, oh man, the thing that's always impressed me is uh, you read the Bible about the disciples bringing Jesus up to a high place to look down on the city and show him and point out the buildings of the temple. And now you look down and I've seen the pictures, right? Of like, um, the dome of the rock. And I'm like, yeah, it's like one tiny little golden roof amidst all these 
lesser buildings, but it's, it's just like, how do you differentiate anything? How do you pick anything out? How do you know where the temple was versus where it wasn't? How do you know where old Jerusalem was versus where it wasn't? And I was still impressed by this when we came in. I had no orientation of anything going, like I, I could not tell where on earth we were besides seeing that little golden point in the midst of all these hundreds and hundreds of buildings and streets and cars. And I mean, it was, it was very overwhelming. But we we pulled in and they played over the speakers just as we exited this tunnel, this song called The Holy City. Uh, it's a beautiful song if you haven't heard it. In my church, I think people have heard it like hundreds and hundreds of times and might get a little bit old. But to hear it while you're seeing The Holy City, it, it really was something. Unfortunately, on our bus, um, the speaker wasn't working or the Bluetooth wasn't working. So they had to play it over the tour guide's microphone through a phone. Instead, I just put in my headphones and looked it up on Spotify, and that worked a lot better. Um, But everyone from each bus heard this song. We played it at the same time, and it was just a really very cool moment. I think most people had uh, tears in their eyes, especially some of the older people that, you know, this is a faraway place, and it's a place we've read about and a place we know about. And we're waiting for the new Jerusalem to come. And so all this stuff kind of just comes together into one moment when you see it for the first time. And you're like, wow, this is impressive. This is the place we've heard about. Now, with this disorientation that I was feeling, I was really glad for our next move because we were going to be going first, before we even got to the hotel, we were going to be going to the Israel Museum. Now, typically when I go to museums, the thing that I want to see is the history, the archaeology, the real artifacts, the things that connect me with an ancient time. But this is not the thing we're going to be doing first. First, uh, we're going to be doing basically the thing that I almost never want to do when I go to a museum, and that is looking at a model. But this model was incredibly helpful. Um, It was a model, a scale model of ancient Jerusalem, and it was absolutely amazing. I mean, it was huge, not just like in a glass display case. This thing was outside and I just looked it up. It's a thousand square meters big and it's a one for 50 ratio of the ancient city. So it was just, I mean, it's very clear to see you can walk around the entire thing and point out different things. We could have spent a lot more time there, honestly. Um, but I think it was a good start to get us oriented. And it was a request from, um, some of the tour handlers, the people that had set up the tour for us, um, to our guides that we stop there and just orient ourselves to the directions of the temple. Because even though the temple's not standing today, um, a lot of like the temple mount itself is still oriented the same way. And obviously cardinal directions are still the same and the city of David is in the same place. And so it was just, it was really helpful to be able to go and you've got a ground level around this model. And then there's also like an upper deck that you can go and stand on to look down over top of the whole city. And that's where we went. And it was just absolutely stunning and honestly, very helpful. I didn't realize how helpful it was going to be um, because, you know, I've seen pictures of Jerusalem before, uh, especially ancient Jerusalem. So I, I figured, yeah, I mean, this kind of just looks like what everything else has looked like up to this point when I see any depiction of it. But seeing it and having things pointed out and then having pictures of it with, I tried to label pictures with um, little notes on like Snapchat and that 
eh, I don't know. It was a little bit helpful, but it was also kind of confusing as well. Um, but yeah, so we did go here and it, it was, I mean, I'm looking at pictures and like a person could fit inside of the Temple Mount area. Like several people could stand inside the Temple Mount area and walk around just fine. And that's not even including everything else throughout all the rest of the city. But they pointed out stuff like uh, Court of the Gentiles and Antonia Fortress and um, City of David and like the cardinal directions of the whole city. So that was cool because those are things we're going to be seeing at least uh, in part, like Antonia Fortress we didn't like see, but we saw where it would have stood. Um, and so getting an idea of where all of this was in relation to other things in Jerusalem was incredibly helpful. And um, it's something that if I had known how helpful that was going to be to my study of the Bible, I probably would have studied those pictures a little bit closer because really uh, this was a cool construction, but I can get the same thing from like artist illustrations online. I just didn't realize how an understanding of the whole layout of this place would give me a clearer picture of what's happening in some of these sections of the New Testament where the temple is talked about or where Jerusalem itself is talked about. So I, I recommend um, if you have, you know, any inclination towards maps at all to, you know, look up some of these these illustrations of ancient Jerusalem and just familiarize yourself with the directions and the different porches and the different gates. And uh, it's, it's really helpful. And the only reason I was able to have it sink in for me was because we went from this tiny model to the life size and they kept referring back to it and I had the pictures as well. So after this, we went, um, it was kind of rapid fire, to be honest, after this point. And I can't go through the whole museum with you and just point out every little artifact, um, especially that I took pictures of. But I will go through some important ones. Um, the first thing we saw was the place where they keep the Dead Sea Scrolls. Incredibly important area. Um, I'm not going to go through the whole story of the Dead Sea Scrolls, but essentially a Bedouin shepherd boy was throwing rocks and threw one into a cave, heard some shattering, and there were scrolls that were so ancient that um, they predated our understanding of some of the oldest texts we've had of the Old Testament. And so it just is very affirming that we have the correct text for our Old Testament uh, documents or the Hebrew Bible. So we went there and that, that was really neat. Um, very dark in there, hard to see. Um, and then, you know, for me, I'm looking at things that aren't facsimiles, but are the originals. And so that kind of leaves me, it almost leaves me not appreciating what I'm seeing, even if it is a facsimile, because if they put a fake there, I mean, that means they have the original. And so I should be appreciating what I'm seeing and what we have in the historical record rather than just, oh, I saw the real one, but that's just the way that my mind works. And so like, even like the Isaiah scroll, which if you, um, if you type in Dead Sea Scrolls, that's the thing you're going to see. It's like, it's got, um, scroll handles as like it's display uh inside this like the whole building is almost like a scroll case and then you go inside and the isaiah scroll which is like the complete book of isaiah is um in this display that looks like a handle of a scroll itself and so it, it's it's cool for sure but it was a facsimile that they had on display at this point in time because it's just gotten so old and they don't want it disintegrating even more especially with more and more pictures making the ink fade. So they've got a facsimile there. So I had to take a picture in front of it because that's what you think of when you think of Dead Sea Scrolls, but it wasn't the real thing. They did have several real ones though, uh, which was cool to see, um, especially being in the land where they were found. 
they had, um, I think what was really cool was just seeing artifacts from the places we had already been up to this point. So like the first thing I took a picture of is, um, this, these two lions and they are, they would be guarding the temple at Hatsor when, during the Canaanite period. And so it was cool because it's like, okay, I can picture where the temple is at Hatsor. I can picture these standing in front of it. And it just kind of makes those places come to life even more. And that's really neat. Um, there's also the oldest, I talked about it in a previous episode, the oldest arch, oldest archaeological proof of David from Tel Dan. And it's a, a king writing saying that he had vanquished um, a certain tribe of the house of David or a certain army from the house of David. There's also um, text in stone. Uh, one of them I took from Isaiah 6 verse 1. It just is an inscription that says, In the year that King Uzziah died, or Uzziah, depending on how you want to say that. Um, and I just thought that was interesting, especially having taught the book of Amos last year. Uh, King Uzziah was during his time of prophesying as well. So that was of particular interest to me. And really a lot of this museum, all, a lot of the artifacts, um, I mean, some are, there's like a whole Canaanite section, but then all the, the ancient Israelite section, it's just proof after proof after proof of the text we have in the Bible being accurate and the different ways it would have been utilized. Like they've got amulets with biblical text on it and jewelry with certain characters that would have represented d- different parts of biblical text or plaques for the wall or... Um, cylinders that would have been used for almost like print where you've got certain things carved into the cylinder then you'd you'd uh, cover it with ink and then roll it out onto paper like original printing printing press almost and a lot of the things are honestly not from Israel itself especially some of these like printing method things Um, but they would have on them something about some of the major figures or um, houses of Israel. So there's one from Sennacherib, and uh, this is you'll find this in the book of Isaiah, and it says something about um, Hezekiah, king of Judah, and laying siege to 46 of the strong cities of Judah. So just proof after proof that the Bible is telling a factual historical story. And so that was really neat. Uh, we also saw the sarcophagus. They believe that Herod the Great was buried in up on top of Herodium. It had since been uh, opened up, the body was removed. It, they didn't even find the body when they opened up the coffin, but it was definitely at Herodium and it was definitely well made. Um, and so they think that they've got that. There was also um, an ossuary, which is a bone box in Israel. When somebody died, they would lay their body in a tomb for a while until the flesh rotted away. Then they would gather the bones up and put them in a, a collective family uh, place, but it would be a lot easier to store than just storing a whole dead body or trying to preserve a dead body, which I think I mentioned it before, but this is where you get the phrase, they were gathered to their fathers. Um, this is what is being talked about. The bones were literally placed with the bones of the descendants or the relatives. And so some of these bone boxes um, were just easier to store. They're very, very much smaller than like a whole coffin. And Caiaphas would have been they believe this is probably Caiaphas from the Bible's ossuary. At the very least, it's proof that Caiaphas was a common name at this time, and this was definitely a royal figure, or maybe not royal, but priestly in some fashion. So potentially this was the Caiaphas from the New Testament. 
Um, from Caesarea Maritime, we had talked about, this is kind of a, if you haven't listened, you don't know what we're talking about, but if you have, um, or you were on the trip, then you have a better understanding. But there was a stone that said Pontius Pilate on it inside the amphitheater there. The actual stone is here at the Israel Museum. They've got uh, one of the very few uh, physical evidences of crucifixion, which is a nail through a heel bone. Uh, probably, like typically, they would not drive nails through the bones of people, which is why we can say of Christ that none of his bones were broken. But in some cases, they would miss, and the nail would go through the bone into the cross itself, and they'd have a hard time getting it back out of the bone. And so, if this happened, they would just bury the person with the nail in their heel. In yeah, in their heel. So we have a couple of examples of this, and one of them is in this Israel museum. That was interesting to see. Uh, then we have destruction and ruins from. Uh, the old temple, we've got emperor's names inscribed on things. I mean, I, I could just go on and on and on. And it just was an absolutely huge and impressive museum. Uh, there was one thing that I really wanted to see that uh, I again left the group for. And I am i don't think that was the worst decision because I did find them before we left and I didn't cause anybody to fall behind and I didn't miss anything that I wanted to see really badly. Um, but I was specifically looking for, um, I'd read this book a while ago. And it was called Where the Gods Are. And it had a whole section. It's basically a book on how ancient people related to um, like spatially being in God's presence, um, whether that was pagan gods or the God of Israel. And, you know, it's like some sometimes the Bible presents it in different ways. It's like God is this massive figure and he's walking on the tops of the trees. That happens in the Bible. Or sometimes he is like person-shaped. Like when Abraham meets with God, um, sometimes he is shining and bright and taller than a man and impressive in some sort of way, but not megalithic, you know? And so it's just kind of talked about that a lot, but there was this whole section on, uh, this cult in Israel, proof of the paganism, uh, the pagan syncretism within Israel at certain times called Yahweh and his Asherah. Yahweh being the God of Israel and Asherah being this pagan God that was brought in. And it was said that uh, Yahweh was married to this Asherah or this, this female goddess and that these were the true gods. And um, it just was an interesting section. I've read about it before and you can see depictions of it in different archaeological evidence, but I had never seen anything like it before. And so having read it in the book, I really wanted to find some proof of this in the Israel museum. And so I left the group to, to try to find some and I couldn't find anybody that spoke English. When I was at Beth Shean, I met that guy and he happened to speak really good English. Here I am at a museum in Jerusalem, which you'd think would be maybe a little bit more used to English visitors. And they spoke very, very little English at all. Um, but I stopped like several people that were museum uh, patrons and none of them could answer my question or even understand what I was asking for. But as I was searching around, I'm just like flying through this museum, like looking at descriptions, trying to find Yahweh and his Asherah, Yahweh and his Asherah. Um, I saw one guy, he was dressed so strangely. He had like on a purple suit and a yellow hat. And he was like Indian descent, maybe like from India. And um, he was leading around this group of like Japanese tourists. And he was telling them all this stuff, but they were speaking in English. Um, and it was so interesting. I don't know what their group was or who this guy was, 
But I said, you seem to know what you're talking about. Do you know where anything about Yahweh and his Asherah are? He immediately, he was so kind, immediately just like took me and his whole group. He said, come with me. I'll show you this too. And he led me into this little room and he showed me two stones uh, that had this inscription on it. So that was really cool. Very nice of him. Um, and it was just such a random encounter after not having seen someone who spoke English in forever, suddenly coming across this like very flamboyantly dressed guy that seems to know everything about the Israel Museum, despite seeming to be of a totally different place and leading people who seem to be from a very different place, but both of them speak English. It was just a very confusing thing, but I was glad I found him because I did finally see this thing that I was hoping to see in the Israel Museum. After this, the last thing we did was just go back to our hotel, or not back to, for the first time we went to our hotel. And this was nice. It was a long day, even though a lot of it was driving. We had a couple hours in the bus. Um, It was nice to get back to our hotel. Unfortunately, this hotel in Jerusalem, it was another Dan Panorama Hotel, which was like the first one we had stayed at in Tel Aviv, like the same brand of hotel. This one was a little bit... um, the, the hotel itself was very nice, but the rooms individually, I, I seem to think they were a little bit smaller and a little bit less ideal. Um, like I, I walked in and the beds were like right next to each other, like literally pushed together. And I was like, all right, I'm going to separate these out so my dad can have his own bed. And they were just very narrow. Um, but I, I didn't care. Honestly, I was like just I didn't know what to expect as far as hotels went. We could have been staying in a mud hut and I would have been like fine with it just because I was glad we were in Israel and now we were in Jerusalem. So this was like maybe of the hotels we stayed at, it was probably my least favorite. But of hotels I stayed at normally, like in my everyday travels or wherever, it still was very nice. Um, I just got back a few weeks ago from... um, we have an event in our church called the winter family weekend where people get together in uh, Cincinnati. It was in Hamilton, Ohio this time, but I stayed at an extended stay America and man, it was gross. Like it was really, really bad. It smelled awful. I checked for bugs and there weren't any, so that was nice, but it just was stinky and dirty, like visibly dirty. So that was not nice. So I'm not in any way saying anything bad about this hotel in Jerusalem because it was very nice by any other standard that I normally have for hotels. But the other two just seemed to be a lot more comfortable to me and a little bit more spacious. So I appreciated that. But it still was a beautiful hotel and a nice place to stay. Everybody was very kind there. So we were glad to be back in our rooms. Um, The day after this, uh, I'll save for my next episode, but we finally got to walk around Jerusalem a little bit, got to go to the Garden of Gethsemane and uh, see the gates of the temple from the outside, or the gates of, rather, the temple mount from the outside, the retaining walls, um, and some beautiful churches that I can't wait to tell you about. So, uh, also the Wailing Wall, that, oh man, that was incredible. So we've got a lot to talk about next time. Jerusalem is jam-packed, there's a lot to say about it, and so I hope you're excited for that. And until then, thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you guys next time.